You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 3, Episode 1. Hi, this is Bill Olver, Managing Editor of PubK. Welcome back to Bonafide Needs and our first episode of 2024. At almost the last possible opportunity in 2023, the Department of Defense published its proposed rule to implement the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Was this a last-minute Christmas gift or a lump of coal in contractor stockings? Joining me today to discuss the rule and its implications are Arnold Importers Ron Lee and Tom Pettit. So let's take a moment to introduce you uh, to our listeners, Ron. So this is Ron Lee, and just so you can get hear the voices, uh, very briefly, there's been a long-running saga with CMMC. As many of you know, uh, the Department of Defense first began this saga in 2019 when it introduced uh, CMMC, the concepts, and then introduced in September 2020, the initial version 1.0. They later rescinded that version and in November 2021 issued CMMC 2.0. Most recently, as Bill said, we now have the proposed rule, uh, which dropped right after uh, Christmas and the comment period on that has started. Much more detail on that in our advisory, which is posted in the comments. But top level, um, you know, I I think the defense industrial base now has with this proposed rule sufficient and likely pretty reliable guidance about what the final rule is going to look like. And big picture, I think the new things to focus on are the assessment and certification regime. That is how you're actually going to verify and affirm that you're in compliance with the applicable requirements. And also for contractors that are given the level three highest designation of CMMC uh, requirements, those are going to be new requirements. And compliance with those requirements is going to probably require some additional um, effort and, and, and guidance. Although if you're dealing with that level of sensitive CUI, presumably at that level, you're already uh, well along the road in terms of compliance. So I think the immediate issues are, are you ready for the assessment, whether it's a self-assessment or a third party? How are you going to get that done in the time frame required? Um, and for level three, is there anything additional you need to, to button up on? The new guidance is on things that we'll cover about how the requirements will be implemented chronologically and what phases and whether you can still have a conditional certification with any outstanding actions, even if you fail to meet specific security controls at levels two and level three. Uh, I'll turn it over to Tom for his initial high-level thoughts about focus. Thanks, Ron. Um, and I agree with all that. I think those are, are excellent points. Um, you know, One additional thing that contractors should keep in mind is that the regime that is being implemented, you know, through CMMC is a little bit different than what you might have experienced under, you know, when you're complying with DFARS 252-204-7012 and 800-171, because previously contractors have been relatively free to use things like plans of action and milestones, and we'll touch on this a little bit later. But here, the CMMC proposed rule is going to impose a number of restrictions on those and really limit it to only specific security controls and require that those be closed out uh, within 180 days. And and one thing to also touch on the nature of the rule that I think is important for contractors to keep in mind is 
this is not a final rule. This is not a contract clause. This is a new section, a new subpart within uh, 32 CFR where the NARA CUI regulations are housed. Um, and it is you know, important to uh, to keep in mind that there is going to be additional rulemaking both at the at the DFARS contract clause level as well as a, a final rule implementing CMMC. Right. Um, and I think we all see that there are a number of uncertainties in the proposed rule, both to think about as you plan compliance and certification, but also possibly to submit comments on in the rulemaking period. And I'll begin with one, and then Tom, you've, I'm sure, identified others. One is uh, there's this tantalizing suggestion that the Department of Defense may uh, exercise discretion to grant waivers from various CMMC requirements. I think my reaction is don't count on that. Don't get too, don't put any part of your reliance or compliance process on that waiver process, because while DOD does say that, um, you know, in appropriate cases, they'll retain full discretion and they may request and approve waivers um, in accordance with internal policies, procedures, and approval requirements. It's very clear in part because all that language is in the preamble. There's nothing in the actual rule that says, yeah, we're gonna do waivers. I think that as uh, a national security agency, Department of Defense wants to retain that discretion but they're going to cabinet and control it pretty tightly so that there's some regularity and consistency and, and control and limitation so that the overall principles and objectives of CMMC get um, get satisfied. So that's again, waivers, you know, it's it's there, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put a lot of reliance on it. Tom, you may want to talk a little bit about IDIQs or some of the other deep ways that there may be uncertainty here. Sure, and, and to tack on to the to the waiver point, you know, as we mentioned in the in the advisory that as Ron said is attached to this podcast, the rule is not particularly clear on what would even be required for a waiver, um, and what that process really looks like, and so that's also something to uh, to keep in mind. It's not there's going to be a likely a lot of discretion there, and it's not entirely clear how that is is going to work in practice. Um, and in terms of some other uncertainties, Ron, as you mentioned, there's you know there are some questions about how CMMC is going to apply to contract vehicles, uh, whether we're talking about IDIQ contracts, federal supply schedule contracts, et cetera. So one question is, you know, is CMMC going to apply at the contract vehicle level? And the reality is, is it's probably going to depend on the nature of the contract. So for instance, if you have a government-wide acquisition contract or a GWAC that's issued by the General Services Administration or GSA, Chances are, right, it's not a DOD contract. Chances are you're not going to find CMMC uh, listed among, you know, the, the clauses that contractors have to comply with. But if DOD issues an order uh, under that contract vehicle, you may very well um, and most likely will be seeing uh, CMMC provisions depending on, on the nature of the work being performed. Another question is, if you have a DOD IDIQ contract, how is DOD going to apply CMMC? Uh, no work is performed until DOD issues either a task order or a delivery order. And so DOD might not be able to determine at the IDIQ level uh, or at the contract vehicle level exactly what the nature of the information is going to be, the exact parameters of the work to be performed. And so it's possible that DOD might postpone, at least in some instances, uh, applying CMMC until it issues an order. But in other circumstances, it may require either a, a baseline level one assessment um, or perhaps even 
a level two or level three uh, self-assessment or certification assessment, depending on DOD's level of comfort with the nature of the work that's going to be performed under orders and whether those orders are going to involve uh, CUI. So for instance, if, you know, if there's a IDIQ contract that involves services relating to weapon systems and, you know, maybe even CETA contracts, things of that nature, DOD may be very comfortable uh, be certain that CUI is going to be involved. And so DOD might, in those instances, require at the IDIQ level that you have CMMC compliance, may not wait until uh, issuing an order. In other situations, it, it may be a little bit more difficult for DOD to make that assessment. I, I would just add that, of course, we're focusing on DOD because this is a DOD proposed rule, but it's quite possible that other agencies will follow suit in some way, shape, or form because uh, the framework really is not unique to DOD. As you all know, uh, these are based on particularly the National Institute of Standards and Technology guidelines, um, security controls for unclassified systems uh, in the private sector, a widely used standard, which a number of agents, other agencies also uh, apply and, and follow. So it's quite possible that this will become more widespread. And I think this discussion really underscores the importance, easier said than done, of coming into compliance and getting the appropriate certification as soon as possible, uh, whether you're on schedules or whether you're doing IDIQs or whether you're pursuing individual contracts. And Ron, to build on that point, and I think that's that's a very good point, you know, contractors uh, should not be necessarily focusing on the specific CMMC requirement at the contract vehicle level. If the contractor believes that they are ultimately going to be competing for orders that could involve CUI, they may, you know, it would be in their interest to to start that process earlier as though it's going to be required at the IDIQ level uh, because there may not be enough time between when an IDIQ is awarded and when DOD starts issuing task orders. Those procurements tend to be a little bit faster and, you know, so there just may not be sufficient time. So contractors, you know, would be advised to not, you know, take a wait and see approach and see what a specific solicitation for an order includes and, and act as though and prepare as though they're going to need to meet those requirements. Indeed, one overall theme of this rule might be the operating tempo of all this, both the way that the phases are going to get uh, rolled in, but also the fact, as I think Tom suggested, that uh, even if you rely on a um, plan of action and milestones to address uh, some issues you know, during your interim certification, you only have 180 days to close that out, and that time can be over relatively in a, in a flash. Um, so, Tom, unless you have something else on that particular issue, I thought we could segue a little bit to talking about how subcontractors might think about this this rule. Um, and I think, you know, my top level thought here is there's really very little difference at one level. You know, if you're a DOD contractor, whether you're a prime or another level, you're going to have to be able to certify and affirm the appropriate level of compliance through the appropriate means at the appropriate time. And um, particularly since you may not always be a subcontractor, you may be a prime in some cases, you may be on different contract vehicles. It really underscores the importance of tempo and coming into compliance as soon as possible. All that said, of course, uh, there are a couple of specific things to think about if you're below the in the stack somewhere below the prime. One is that... Um, there's going to be like a, a mix between what comes down to you 
all the requirements that you're going to have to meet and the ones that you're going to be able to pass along to subcontractors and tiers below you. And that's obviously going to vary from contractor task order to other task orders. But the overall question is, if you can look at the work you do, the types of CUI, we'll assume that you're likely to get FCI, federal contract information in any case, but the types of CUI that you're likely to receive or not, then you can decide what timing and what tempo you need to come into compliance and at what level. And in particular, if you have some discretion in what contract performance requirements you retain and which ones you pass along further to contractors below you, uh, you can maybe factor that into what levels of certification both you need to achieve and what, what they need to achieve. The other point, which I'll pass to Tom to talk about as well as other things, is that I, I think that at the end of the day, this may cause some changes in the defense industrial base in terms of consolidation, because um, just as we saw uh, many years ago with the changes in the organiza organizational conflicts of interest rule, which led to a wave of consolidation and M&A activity, here, if you're a subcontractor and you see that you're just never going to be able to want to satisfy level three, for instance, or if you're a prime and you see that you need to acquire a certain subcontractor with a certain capability and a certain level of certification, that you may view M&A as one way to pursue that. So uh, this is more Tom's area. So I'll, I'll pass to him on that to see if he has any further thoughts. I think that's right, Ron. Um, you know, there are a variety of different considerations that can entice companies to, you know, either consolidate, reorganize, uh, acquire other companies. And this may very well be one of those, especially if, you know, certain contractors aren't set up to be able to comply with these and are concerned that they might not be able to comply with them um, or they may want to uh, spin off, you know, an, an entity into a standalone entity that's going to or a subsidiary that's going to be you know, performing strictly government contracts to try and segregate uh, systems. So, I mean, there are a variety of different considerations. Those are just a few that could lead to that. But um, I think that there's certainly on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, that's definitely something that, that could occur. Also on the issue of subcontractors, you know, one thing that subcontractors uh, should be keeping in mind is there is, you know, although this is a mandatory, you know, this is going to be a mandatory flowdown, um, and prime contractors and higher tier subcontractors are going to have to incorporate uh, the CMMC requirements throughout the supply chain, uh, depending on the nature of the information that a lower tier subcontractor is going to have. There is some room for negotiating on these issues. So, you know, for instance, some subcontractors, maybe those that do raw materials or that are way down in the supply chain, might feel like they're not going to need CUI or maybe even FCI. But prime contractors and higher tier subcontractors have an incentive to maybe flow down these requirements anyways, because it gives them, you know, a level of security to be able to say to the government, if there is a subcontractor not compliance, hey, we flowed this down, we're going to make our subcontractors comply, because it mitigates risk, even if maybe that lower tier subcontractor might potentially not have CUI. So, you know, it's one thing that subcontractors need, need to think about. And there are different ways when you're talking about cybersecurity compliance and, and in particular compliance with, you know, CUI issues, whether it's CMMC, NIST SB 800-171, and, and DFARS 252-204-7012, there are, you know, different ways to, to address risks. For example, if you're a lower tier subcontractor, you might want to include a provision in a subcontract uh, requiring that all information that qualifies as CUI be marked. You might be looking to try and include indemnification provisions. I mean, there are different ways that you can approach this. And conversely, 
prime contractors and higher tier subcontractors need to be, you know, thoughtful about the types of provisions that they agree to, because those could ultimately shift risks to them that maybe, you know, they don't necessarily want to have to have to bear. So uh, there are a number of different ways that this can impact uh, subcontracts, both sort of in the performance stage, but also in the negotiation phase. So that's as good an opportunity as any to make the point that there's what you plan for and, and you know, getting uh, certifications, getting assessments and, and making the affirmations. And there's what happens. And those aren't always the same two things. So uh, to Tom's point, you can plan that, OK, uh, we're only going to have level one or level two information in our information systems. But if you're somewhere in that subcontractor stack and somebody who's got a higher level of certification sends you an email with that controlled information, guess what? Boom, you've got, you now have that level of information in your contractor information system. And the question is whether you're compliant or not. So I think it underscores the importance of having fairly systematic and rigorous compliance controls uh, in this area, as is true with so many other areas of government contracts compliance. Let's pass, Tom, to uh, the, the next question of how a contractor can uh, affirm certification, even if in some way, shape, or form, uh, their IT systems are, are not in full compliance. We've already talked about waivers, but uh, maybe you can touch a little bit on questions like scope, um, scoring, and then uh, the very, very limited uh, non-applicability for um, COTS uh, products and services. Ron, to take that last point first, uh, in terms of applicability, one thing that has changed, and, and one thing that was an open question and, and that received a fair amount of attention uh, when CMMC 1.0 was around was, you know, how does this apply to contracts that are solely for commercially available off-the-shelf or, or COTS items? And here, it's not going to apply to COTS items. Um, the, the proposed rule, assuming the proposed rule continues in its same fashion, when DOD issues a final rule, those are going to be exempt from these requirements. And, you know, in most instances, contractors are probably, you know, they're performing contracts solely for COTS items or most likely not going to have FCI or, or CUI. But that is one sort of thing that DOD has, uh, has now made clear. Um, and in terms of, you know, certifications, I mean, one other interesting thing here about this proposed rule is that contractors are now going to be tasked with making express certifications to the government of compliance. This is a little bit different than what contractors currently experience under DFARS 252-204-7020, for instance, where, you know, you're performing a self-assessment, you put a score into the SPRS, but you're still allowed to do things like rely upon plans of action and milestones and, and things of that nature. So you don't necessarily have to have 100% compliance to be able to enter a score into the SPRS. And there's less insight uh, for DOD about, you know, how you calculated that score than there will be under CMMC. So one thing for contractors to keep in mind is this obviously brings about potential false claims act and other types of risks where you have these express certifications of compliance is making sure that when you make these certifications, not only sort of at the initial level when you're doing the assessments, but as Ron alluded to, um, when you're doing the annual affirmations, uh, when you have the senior official that is uh, certifying continuing compliance with CMMC, that those are accurate um, and that you're comfortable making those express certifications. 
Right, Tom. So uh, exactly. And and there's no uh, ability to kind of relax and say, well, we only have to do the certification once every three years, because as you said, you have to affirm compliance annually at, at the senior level. Um, in passing, I would note there are a couple of other ways that a certification uh, and affirmation can become invalid and, and no longer active in SPRS. One is if you do try to close out a, a POA and M for a specific security control where you have a deficiency or a missing thing, and you fail to close that out within 180 days, then the, you can no longer rely on, on the conditional affirmation. Um, another is, and then probably uh, even more um, sort of uh, ominous, if you will, is that the CMMC Program Management Office could receive allegations that a particular active uh, assessment is inaccurate. And this information could come from the accreditation body, CMMC AB, could come from uh, an accreditor organization or really anybody knowledgeable of security processes and activities of the contractor. The PMO will investigate that and if warranted, they also could revoke the assessment. So I, I think this just underscores that there's a lot going on and an ongoing system of control evaluation um, and uh, ongoing compliance checks is, is really what is necessary. Again, as is true of much of the government contracts world. So Tom, um, if, if you don't uh, wanna add, add to that, we should probably uh, do a kind of a, a lightning round. And again, I wanna emphasize that we have not tried to cover in any way all of the elements of the pro proposed rule. There's a lot here. Um, our advisory, which again is linked in the notes to um, this podcast, gives you a lot more detail and, and issues to pursue and, and aspects of the proposed rule. But I guess I would begin by saying that I think the scope of the assessment is a key thing to focus on, both when you do a current assessment and figure out what needs to be assessed and what you're certifying, but also um, going forward uh, as you plan your business strategy, your IT architecture, uh, as we talked about, your possible M&A or strategic strategy and, and basically all the business issues because those are also going to affect the way the IT system works and how it looks and whether you're going to have various levels of CMMC information in those systems. So uh, just to remind you all, as you know, um, the, the scope, the level one is basically all assets that process, store, or transmit federal contract information. And really that's um, pretty pretty widespread because federal contract information, as you know, is what, you're, what you need basically to uh, administer and perform the contract, not necessarily CUI. Level two is all assets that process, store, or transmit CUI, and all assets to provide security protections. Those are all in scope in a level two evaluation. Uh, there's some additional assets that are not in scope, but you have to document, and uh, they could result in identification of a deficiency. And then at some consolation to level two folks is that there are specialized assets that the proposed rule calls out as specifically not being in scope. These are assets that could process, store, transmit CUI but they're unable to be fully secured, such as Internet of Things devices, but they have been designed so that they're not going to be processing CUI. 
And then finally, level three scope is uh, very important because it includes assets that even if they're not intended to process, store, transmit, CUI, um, it, you have to include those within scope because of the sense, the high sensitivity of that level of, of CUI. So again, scope matters. It matters more as you go higher up into different levels, and it matters both in attaining a current assessment and as you plan uh, your future IT architecture and business strategy. Tom, final thoughts over to you. Thanks, Ron. And, uh, you know, one thing to, to mention on scoping is something for contractors when they're looking at their IT uh, structure and the, their IT ecosystem is to think about whether they have any type of logical or physical separation of networks or whether that's something they can do to try and, and limit uh, the, you know, the, the number and nature um, and extent of information systems that may be subject to some of these requirements. Um so um, that, that's a that's a great point. And you mentioned earlier, too, and I'll just underscore it, that, you know, some contractors may wish to consider a dedicated IT environment for their federal contracting activities. There's other reasons, non-CMMC reasons to do that. But I think this proposed rule gives another impetus to considering whether that that makes sense so that you can more rigorously design, control and, and monitor what's going on within that environment where you have to uh, provide these continuing affirmations. Absolutely. And, and one thing, you know, that's kind of related to this discussion as well as uh, the certification discussion that we had a little bit ago is um, that contractors, you know, before you go and you're getting uh, the C3PAOs involved and, you know, you're, you're bringing in third parties to do sort of formal uh, certification assessments at level two or, or level three um, is to assess your compliance internally first, um, especially if you're concerned that you may have uh, had some non-compliance with, with non-compliances with 800-171 uh, in the past. And another thing to think about is, you know, involving legal counsel, not just necessarily outside counsel, but even in-house counsel, um, you know, when you're performing these assessments, it's not so much a pitch as it is a word of caution, um, because one thing that lawyers both in-house and outside uh, can provide is attorney-client privilege over certain types of, of these assessments. And so that's something to keep in mind. I mean, there are a number of different ways, but that's one thing that can you know, help limit future risks. Um, uh, so another question is, how do these requirements get incorporated into contracts? An easy scenario, right, is a brand new contract, right? A brand new procurement where the solicitation incorporates uh, the DFARS CMMC provision, which is currently, I think, dash 7021. Um, and maybe that will continue with some modifications. Maybe there will be, you know, a, a new clause that replaces that. We'll have to wait and see how the DFARS rulemaking uh, shapes up. But um, that's sort of the, the easy scenario. But one of the things that the rule contemplates is that contracting officers may be incorporating these requirements uh, when they exercise new options. And I don't think we need to go into, you know, a ton of detail about it here. But one thing for contractors to keep in mind is, right, there are costs that are associated with this. There are impacts on schedules. There are other, there are ways that incorporating CMMC kind of midstream in contract performance uh, can affect contractors. And so uh, you might be entitled to uh, equitable adjustments in various ways, depending on changes, clauses, et cetera. Another thing to think about is, you know, there could be a difference in how contracting officers incorporate CMMC depending on whether it is a contract for commercial products and services or a contract for non-commercial products and services. 
if you have a contract for commercial products and services, it obviously requires a uh, bilateral modification uh, for just about any change other than administrative changes, which I don't think this would qualify as an administrative change, um, as well as, uh, you know, for non-commercial uh, products and services, contracting officers generally have the right to make unilateral modifications to contracts. And so they're going to have a bit of an easier path in that scenario, subject, of course, to, um, you know, potential rights to an equitable adjustment. So there's kind of an end state, you know, there's the various implementation phases, but in the proposed rule, DOD states that they intend to include the requirements for levels one, two, and three in all solicitations issued on or after October 1st, 2026. That is not room for complacency now because there's a lot of uh, ways that you could get hit much sooner than that with a CMMC requirement. But it's just saying that that's when DOD thinks everything will be included in solicitations going forward. Again, you could get hit sooner than that, either in a contract or in an exercise of an option. So um, with that, Bill, I, th I think this gives you an overview. And if you'd like to take us out. Thanks, Ron. And thank you and Tom for joining me today to discuss this long-awaited proposed rule. We'll be following CMMC developments, including how contractors react and comment on the proposal in the coming months. Thanks again to my guests, Ron Lee and Tom Pettit. Be sure to visit PubK's website for information on our Government Contracts Annual Review. For the first time, our conference will be held live and in person. Join us on February 13th and 14th at the Ronald Reagan International Trade Center in Washington for two days of in-depth discussions and networking. We'll have special guests from Arnold and Porter on three of our panels. You can find the link to the registration page in our show notes. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com. Thanks for listening. You can find Bonafide Needs at your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. And that's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olver and Tina Chen.